locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that you could join us and so thankful for those earlier today who participated in our share and by God's grace, we were able to meet the goal of $25,000. Again, we give you uh, Actually, encouragement. Yeah, we, we went over that. We went huh? over $27,136. Oh, that's great. That yeah. is just great. Thank you for each person who gave. We're very grateful. And uh, we will use that money very, very carefully for the Lord's work and for the furtherance of this station. Now, if you're with us for the first time for the next hour here on the Bible line, we take questions that people have. Uh, sometimes there are issues that come up in your personal life or uh, sometimes in your ministry life or just in your study of Scripture, and you're trying to understand a passage as to how it applies or what it means, if we can be of help, by God's grace, we will. Again, locally, the number is 843-525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL, that stands for The Bible Line, at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question to one of our volunteers here, and they will shoot it here to the screen in front of us this morning. All right, Rick, uh, let's go ahead and we'll get started and jump in with both feet. All right. Well, you talked about personal questions, and this one is indeed a personal question. This uh, young lady writes, Hi, Pastor Carl. I am in need of a place to live and have a potential roommate, but it's a man. Is that wrong? I need a place. Well, my, that's a great question and a fair question. And, you know, we live in a day where a lot of singles uh, in trying to uh, find a roommate to cut costs uh, sometimes are tempted to uh, gravitate and take a roommate of the opposite sex. And and I'm assuming by the nature of the question here that this is supposedly – not a romantic relationship or anyone with sexual uh, overtones to it. Obviously, that's definitively wrong. Uh, God speaks against fornicators and adulterers and how they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. People who live that way are giving the marks that they've never been born again. So I'm assuming here, of course, that that's not the case. With that said, uh, it would be very unwise to, and I think really in violation of Scripture, to adopt a roommate of the opposite sex for several reasons. Obviously, there's not a verse in the Bible that specifically spells this out because living arrangements were far different in the first century than they are in this century. But there are biblical principles that define this. So let me turn here to the book of Romans chapter 13. And uh, in Romans 13 and in verse 14, uh, the Apostle Paul very straightforwardly says, but put on the Lord Jesus... Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its loss. So we're to make no provision for the flesh. To make a provision is when you put yourself in some kind of a situation where you're basically tempting your sin nature, where you're giving your sin nature an opportunity. And so when two people of the opposite, you know, sex are brought together under the same roof and they're not married, they are potentially creating that kind of problem. Uh, The girl roommate walks through with a towel on, and that's not wise uh, for her male roommate or 
or maybe uh, the man comes home from work and he's trying to comfort his friend and gives an extra long hug, and there's just no telling where that can go. And so it's very, very unhealthy. No matter how deeply committed a person may be to Christ, the Scripture warns, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. Why? Because no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And if you're thinking, well, I wouldn't be tempted. This is just a friend. We don't think that way. Then you have really um, overestimated the power of your sin nature uh, or underestimated the power of your sin nature. Uh, another passage would be 1 Corinthians 10. It says, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So you really have to ask, uh, does this glorify God, especially in the day that we live in? Uh, we live in a day when when people often of the opposite sex are rooming together, and really without any shame. I mean, I meet people all the time now who say, well, you know, my boyfriend and I, you know, we're trying to save money, or I recently went to the dentist, and, you know, my hygienist was talking about her boyfriend, and I thought, you know... Uh, there's no shame anymore. She thought nothing of it. That's the day that we live in. Uh, People don't blink at this kind of sin. So with that said, most people are going to assume if there's two people of the opposite sex living under the same roof, that it's not, quote unquote, a platonic relationship, but it's a sexual relationship. And so you're bringing your testimony into question. So number one, you want to make no provision for the flesh, Romans thirteen fourteen. You don't want to do anything that even appears evil. First Corinthians 10 tells us that we're to do all to the glory of God. In, in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, it says abstain from every appearance of evil. Uh, some things are not evil in and of themselves, but they have the appearance of evil. And again, our witness for Christ should take preeminence over any financial considerations. And... Look, uh, if you're walking along the edge of a grand, uh, the Grand Canyon, you think, well, I can walk along the edge of this canyon and get some great selfies and some great pictures and the like, and I'll be just fine. Uh, you are making a foolish decision because there are factors that come into play that are out of your control. All of a sudden, a wind gust comes. Uh, your, your shoe malfunctions. The heel breaks. Uh, you get dizzy. There's a rock slide, and all of a sudden, you're over the edge. Well, listen, uh, we don't want to see how close we can get to sin. We are not to flirt to sin, with sin. We're to run far away from it, especially in the realm of sexual temptations. So, um, that would be my answer. It would be very, very unwise for you to adopt a roommate of the opposite sex because it potentially makes a provision for the flesh. Secondly, it doesn't really glorify God in the day that we live in. Third, it has the appearance of evil. And you could certainly cause a brother to stumble as well. We could add that one. And by the way, these are all covered in the discovery class. We have a course called Back to Basics, and it's a 45-week discovery class discipleship course of a type, um, and we recommend every new Christian in our church go through it. And then sometimes even people who have been Christians for decades, but they've never been discipled, they need to go through it as well. So this very issue under what we call gray areas, it's in uh, session two that we spend three weeks on, uh, it deals with this particular realm so it gives you just some ammunition on how to deal with 
uh, issues that are not specifically spelled out, but you don't want to cause a brother to stumble. So someone may look at you and say, well, wow, uh, he or she is a godly Christian, and they have the freedom to live under the same roof uh, platonically, so to speak, with someone of the opposite sex. I guess I can too. So you've set an example that will no doubt cause someone else to stumble. So very, 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 very unwise. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and one listener would like to know if you have ever considered or would consider doing a study on uh, or a harmony on the life of Christ. Well, I'm assuming you're here you're by the life of Christ, you mean of the four gospels where we find a biography of Christ's life. And there are certainly um some advantages to uh studying the Bible in that fashion, but there's a lot of disadvantages as well. Um God didn't give us one gospel where he harmonized them. He gave us four specific gospels and he did for a reason. Now, certainly the New Testament Gospels never contradict. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in full harmony, uh, which uh, means that there's no contradictions whatsoever, like, you know, four singers who harmonize, the four Gospels harmonize. But God gave us four Gospels for a reason. Matthew is written to the Jewish person. It's really to prove that Jesus is the king. Israel's king. Uh, God said that there would be one, Second Samuel 7, who would sit on Israel's throne. Uh, Jesus has not fulfilled that aspect of the prophecy yet. He will at his second coming when he rules and reigns for a thousand years. But in the fullest sense, he has not completed that prophecy or even the promise that uh, the angel Gabriel gave to Mary on the night that the Lord Jesus was born. And uh, he, he said that, and angel said, do not be afraid, for behold, I'll bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For, day in the city of, for today in the city of David, there is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And, um, and then uh, they go on and they describe some of the promises that God will make for this person, that this Messiah, her son, uh, the eternal God, would sit on David's throne. Uh, that has not yet happened, but it will happen during the millennial reign of the Messiah. So the first gospel is written really as a proof to the Jewish people that Jesus is Lord. And he's writing, of course, to Jewish believers who already embrace that. But because God has not forsaken his promises to Israel, uh, he is giving them really an apologetic to speak to their Jewish friends because they would be first in line to do that. No one questions that Matthew's gospel is the Jewish gospel, and so extensive quotations of the Old Testament more than any of the four gospels with no explanation because he's assuming the audience is Jewish. But he's also answering a question in the kingdom parables in light of the fact that they officially rejected Jesus as the Lord, not all. He came to his own, but his own received him not. Uh, in the early days of the church, Acts 1 through 7, everyone who's converted is a Jew. But the question that Jewish Christians would have is, well, what's the promises to Israel? What does it mean? What does it mean in light of the kingdom? And so he really answers that question. In the Gospel of Mark, he is writing to Gentiles, really specifically to a Roman audience, uh, Roman Christians, that that sector of the Gentile world who are very self-serving, self 
self-sufficient kind of people, and he presents Jesus as a servant. That The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When you come to Luke, uh, he is also writing to a Gentile audience. Uh, some would say not to the Jewish man or the religious man or the strong, self-serving man like Mark, but to the intellectual man. And he's presenting Jesus as the Son of Man. And he uses the highest form of Greek in all the New Testament. That and the writer of the Hebrews um, do so. And then John, of course, is written to the searching man, to the skeptical man. Many other miracles were done, but these have been recorded, John gives in his epilogue, that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah. And so he's writing to the skeptic, to the searching man, and he's presenting Jesus as the Son of God, as the eternal Son of God, the one with no beginning or no end. So to go ahead and to teach the Gospels in a harmony is really to take away from the argument, not to mention the meaning of many of the texts of Scripture. For instance, uh, take the, uh, let me think here for a second, take the miracle of multiplication where Christ feeds 20,000. That miracle is recorded in all four Gospels. In fact, that's the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. But how it's presented in each Gospel is a little bit different. And uh, John's gospel, of course, who is writing with an evangelistic purpose, he also has a whole sermon, the Bread of Life Discourse, that is accompanied with that miracle on the next day there in the um, synagogue in Capernaum. So they're written for a different purpose, and I think you would really take away from the meaning of Christ's life and ministry and what each gospel is trying to present. Now, I say all that to say I'm not against a pastor who would teach the gospel in harmony. And sometimes, of course, when you teach a gospel, you want to look at the parallel text because the parallel text sometimes gives some insights or details that another text might not. Uh, So like um, Luke mentions or Matthew mentions a slave's ear is cut off when they arrest Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Luke gives us the fact that a miracle takes place, and he would probably underscore this as a physician where it's immediately healed, and gives us the name of the slave of whom the miracle took place, Malchus. So they don't contradict, they complement. So you might uh, reflect in that way as you you teach. But uh, teaching the Gospels is a harmony really, I think, in many ways, uh, tends to obscure the distinct differences in the four Gospels and why they were written. So um, so if you're going to ask me, I'd say, no, I probably will never do that. Look, I've only taught publicly the Gospel of John. I've taught all, virtually every book of the New Testament, but publicly where you can get my sermons, only the Gospel of John. Um, but one of the things that I do that not every pastor does is I usually move back and forth between an Old Testament book and a New Testament book. Not always. Sometimes I'll do two New Testament books in a row, then an Old Testament book. Um, but I teach a lot of the Old Testament. Like, I admire John MacArthur greatly, and he did a New Testament commentary series, but he almost taught nothing on the Old Testament. Um, He didn't have time to. He had to make a choice, and so he made his choice, and he taught Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I think he spent, like, I forgot, like 15 years just doing the Gospels, Um, but I've chosen to 
to interface it with certain Old Testament books. So I usually do Old Testament, New Testament books. So um, practically speaking, I don't think I will live long enough uh, to, to, to do every single book of the Bible. Uh, I, I hope I will live a long time. If, the, if the, I prefer the rapture, I wish it would happen tomorrow. But I, I hope to preach into my 80s if God will give me the strength and uh, we'll see what happens. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. And we do have a live caller standing by. Uh, let's go to them now. Good morning. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, Dr. Cole, Brother, and Ed. Um, I got a question. You know, the Bible talks about when King David and Saul was persecuting him, and King David had the opportunity to, you know, if he wanted to, to kill him. He, he didn't. He said, he was in, you know what, touch God's anointed, correct? Yes, yes. So I heard a lot of the preachers in the 20th century or 21st century like to use that phrase, do not touch God's anointed. I heard some preachers on YouTube that, uh, that, that try to explain what it really means because some people, some preachers use it in a way to way to make them look superior or something. Can you really explain the proper context of that phrase, do not touch God's anointed? Yeah, so um, it, it's an important phrase, and it needs to be defined within the Scripture itself. When I was in Israel recently, I taught on this very subject because I was uh, in the Valley of uh, Elah, where David is, um, and I kind of walked through the whole process that led Saul to become David's enemy. And of course, there in the Valley of Elah, David had an opportunity to take Saul's life and Saul goes into a cave to um, cover his feet. The Hebrew says it's a euphemism to relieve himself. He used a bathroom, and um, he, in the process, laid aside his robe, and David is hiding in the cave, and he cuts off a portion of the robe, and after Saul leaves, uh, David calls out to him and waves it, and Saul's under deep conviction that David could have easily have taken his life, and, and of course, David sees Saul as the anointed one. Now, the anointed one is a phrase that is also uh, translated the Messiah. So he's a Messiah of sorts, not the Messiah, but the word Messiah in Hebrew means anointed one. And so there were certain kings in Israel's history that were anointed ones. They were set apart by God, and the first king in Israel's history to be as such was Saul. Saul, David, Solomon were the first three kings in Israel's history, and each was anointed by a prophet of God, and they were set apart. And so um, they were not only set apart for God's purposes, they were empowered for God's purposes. And so Saul experienced a special encounter with the Holy Spirit, and David, of course, in Psalm 51, when he prays, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me, he's really saying, Lord, don't take your anointing from me. Because he saw in Saul's life the Holy Spirit depart from Saul because of Saul's wicked sin, and God said no more. So uh, there's no parallel at all is what I'm trying to say between pastors today who say, well, don't touch God's anointed like they are above reproach. Look, we're all accountable, and so we submit to one another in the Lord. And while pastors who may be set apart in an entirely different way, but certainly not the way the kings of Israel as God's messiahs, as God's anointed one. And of course, Jesus is the Messiah of all the messiahs, the King of kings and Lord of all lords. Um, he um, is totally different, but, but, but there's no parallel is what I'm trying to say. 
and these pastors who say, well, you can't speak anything negatively about me and I'm above you and you can't touch God's anointed. And those, that's just, that's cult-like. That's controlling. That's, uh, that's very, very unhealthy and very, very unbiblical. And um, it goes against New Testament passages where, look, uh, Paul even confronted Peter to his face and rebuked Peter on one occasion as a fellow apostle and as a fellow elder, because Peter refers to himself as an elder as well. All elders are not apostles, but all apostles were pastors or elders. And he confronted him. Peter didn't say, well, don't touch God's anointed, especially since I'm one of the original anointed ones. No, he doesn't use the term in that way or in that fashion because it's not scriptural and there's no New Testament parallel. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Patrick writes, I have been involved with a youth group at church and recently found out that out of about 20, only two or three are born again. I shared the gospel with them and taught on hell, but I just can't seem to reach them or get their attention. Could you possibly recommend a video or something that could catch their attention? I am kind of thinking of something relating to hell that would scare their pants off, but would be open to any suggestions. Hope you can help. Thanks. Well, um, look, it's a, it's a very general presentation of the gospel, and it's available online. I'd be happy to provide you, Patrick, with a free DVD, though you could simply download it and play it off the computer and mirror it on a TV if you wish, but you're welcome to a DVD copy. It's entitled, Would You Like to Have God as Your Friend? It's what I share virtually uh, every week when I have a meet the pastor or if there's someone in the office and... In the course of conversation, I discover they're not a Christian, then I walk them through the plan of salvation. So here's the thing, though. Before you can get a person saved, you got to get them lost. And so you see this modeled by the Lord Jesus himself. For instance, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, as it's often called, though the word good, of course, never appears in the text, but this Samaritan who acted in a good way... Um, you know, it's a parable, um, but he acts in a way that is way beyond good. Um, it's way beyond anything that we often use the term uh, today to say, well, he was a good Samaritan. You know, someone helps someone across the street or oh, they see someone broken down on the side of the road. And, oh, man, that woman, she obviously going to have trouble changing that flat. Let me do it for her. And we call that person a good Samaritan. Doesn't even compare. Doesn't even compare with the illustration that Jesus makes with the Good Samaritan and the kind of uh, things that he does. It's way off the top. And so Jesus says to this man, yeah, you want to be saved by the law, do this and you'll live. Uh, But he can't do it. None of us can. And so Jesus is getting him lost in response to his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The problem is he's trying to justify himself, seeking to justify himself. The text will say, uh, well, who then is my neighbor? And so uh, that's the problem. So you've got to get these youth lost before you can get them saved. So how, does, how do you get someone lost? Well, you use the law of God. And more and more today, especially with youth, uh, there's so much moral compromise in the human heart. So don't be afraid to speak about the moral issues that are going on. Uh, the sad statistics of so-called evangelicals, and they're not evangelical. You know, the term evangelical used to be synonymous with what we would call 
a true Christian, or today we prop up the word Christian and we say born-again Christian. Obviously, if you're not born again, you're not Christian, but we're distinguishing those who are just Christianized with those who've been regenerated by the Spirit. And, um, you know, we live in a day where people call themselves evangelical born-again Christians, but they're living sexually immoral lives. And so don't be afraid to address that issue. You know, don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, not fornicators. Hey, young people, that's premarital sex. Uh, And then he goes down through the list and he says um, "Well, that such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, And that's countercultural. That's so different to the way even the average youth might think. In Galatians chapter 5, he very clearly and articulately says, now the deeds of the flesh, or we might say now the deeds of the sin nature. Here, flesh, sarks, is not a reference to the skin that covers your skeleton, but to the sinful fallen nature within. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, and on goes the list. And then he says, and things like these, in case I missed any, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, the key word here is practice or live like this, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And then he'll go on further and he'll say that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He's not speaking of perfection here because the exhortation is to walk by the Spirit that you might not do any of these things. Implication, it's possible for a Christian to do any of these things. And so my answer to the first question today, is it okay for someone to have a roommate of the opposite sex? Um, And again, that presumes on your own strongness and presumes you're smarter than God to make such a decision. But um, likewise, in Ephesians chapter 5, again, a very, very straightforward exhortation as to the kind of lifestyle that we are called to live, where the chapter opens to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. And then he says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And God, let no one deceive you with empty words, because that's what they are, empty words. All these born-again Christians, oh yeah, I'm living with my boyfriend, but I'm born again. I'm going to heaven. I might not have much reward, but I'm going there. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So what you need to be praying for is for the Lord to give you discernment on how to use his law to bring about conviction because you'll never get them saved until you can get them lost. And certainly you might want to, if you want a sermon on hell, you might want to listen to my message on Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Because, of course, I deal with the law there as well. Or I... um. I haven't come to it yet, but when I come to Revelation 22, he will speak of those who are excluded from the kingdom, and that might be another good message to play. Uh, once I, I get to that passage, I think you might find that helpful as well. So these are critical issues. Before you can get them lost, saved, you've got to get them lost, and what God uses is his law. 
because the law, the standards, the morality of God is a school teacher to lead us to faith in Christ. So the law is used of God to convict us, to show us, to reveal us that we are sinful. Um, it was likened by some of the Protestant reformers as a mirror. You, when you look into the law, you look into a mirror and you see the filth in your soul and the need for forgiveness. It was never given to justify. The law was given to terrify, to show us that we have a need for a Savior. Anyway, I hope that helps, Phil. Um, be in prayer, though. Really, you know, God's Spirit alone can convert people and remind some of these youth that we live in a day where many claim to be Christians. Jesus says in Luke six forty seven, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Uh, Then he says in a parallel text, different occasion, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and then he'll even identify the outward Christian activity that they had, maybe like the members of your youth group, but I will say to them, I never knew you, depart from me. So remind them that this is what it will be like in the last days, that it will be very comfortable to say you're a Christian and to live a lifestyle that contradicts it, to quote Titus, Uh, They profess to know him, but by their deeds, they deny him. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, a couple weeks ago when we did our last Bible line, we had a caller at the end of the program and we didn't get a chance to ask their question. So we'll do it now. This caller, a woman, was wondering if you would uh, answer the following. Is it scriptural for a woman to lead a Sunday school class of men and women where she would basically read a scripture and then discuss what the pastor has taught them about that scripture or comments the pastor has made about it. Well, here's the thing. Uh, You want to model uh, God's ideal. And so you want to get as close to obeying the truth and not to live on a ragged edge. And I, I, if I understand your question, you're not just saying a woman who teaches a mixed class but you are teaching what the pastor teaches. But if you're teaching what the pastor teaches, you're still teaching. And God plainly says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, period. He couldn't have said it any more plainly than that. Um, Now, so it depends. To answer your question, it depends who you're talking to. Things are changing so fast. Beth Moore would say, fine. Sure, she does it all the time. Kay Arthur, she used to be a really solid Bible teacher. She'd say, fine. She goes on cruises and she teaches and to mix audiences of men and women. Um, these are women who have left uh, what they themselves even believed, or at least they said they believed at one time. J.D. Greer, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he would say, fine. So he has mixed classes in his church up there in um, Durham, North Carolina and the multiple campuses they have where women teach Sunday school classes, and he'll even allow them to preach on a Sunday morning as long as it's not what he calls some controversial doctrinal issue, and then one of the men elders should do that. So it's a lot of double talk. He's afraid to uh, offend any of the millennials and those below because he wants to have a big church And he wants thousands of people to come and not anybody to get mad at him. So he even got real soft on the sin of homosexuality. This is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Who ever would have thought? So, look, if there's not some men who have enough spine, spiritual steel, 
to say, hey, look, honey, let me teach the class. I would disband the class or I'd say, well, I'm not teaching until one of you guys step up. Let the men be men. That's what we need. We need men to be men. We need women to teach. And women can have the gift of teacher, can even have the spiritual gift of pastor teacher, which is much different than the office of pastor of pastor. But they are not to teach over men. Why? Because God gave an order of things. It's not an issue of equality. It's an issue of role. And when you have women teaching in a mixed audience, you have violated that and you've created problems because women who will do that, and especially like today, women who will become pastors, you know, this is just like really, really bad. Paula White, a pastor, why Dr. Jeffers and Jack Graham endorsed her new book is beyond me. I'm just so upset with these two guys, and I'm getting feedback all the time because we play them on our station. Why these two guys, you know, forget the fact that she's a woman pastor. She's broken up two marriages. She had an affair with Benny Hinn. It's public knowledge. She's not like a woman at the well who's converted. And then this is all on was she's out there in quote unquote ministry and why they are endorsing this woman. And you can even see YouTube quotes by her where she definitively denies the deity of Jesus. Why they would endorse her book is beyond me. But you see, this is the day that we are living in. We're living in a day of of compromise. Everybody wants to be liked. Everybody wants to be liked. And so, ladies, let the men lead, and you lead ladies. Otherwise, you'll end up feminizing the next generation of young boys who need to be men. And uh, not to mention, uh, if a woman is a pastor, she has created a terrible upfront role. Men respond to sight. You say, well, no men are going to lust after her. You have underestimated the sinful nature and what God says. And so if you put a woman up there week after week, and some of them that dress provocatively like Paula White, um, you've created some real problems in the body of Christ, and you dismiss the high and holy role that God has given to women because, you see, God values the family. He values the family, and so women are given a particular role to disciple other women, older women, to teach the younger women. Why? So that there can be healthy families. And you don't want the kind of families that some of these women have and the kind of kids that they have raised. You don't want what they want. And so pull back the veneer and take a close look. And you might say, is that really what I want? But you see, we live in a day where everybody wants to be famous and rich and a celebrity. We don't want to make anybody mad And we want our book sales to be off the charts. And uh, so let's just compromise a little bit here and there. And that's destructive to the body of Christ. So get some guy to step up and take the role. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, don't forget if uh, you had a question and didn't get a chance to hear it all, or perhaps you haven't listened to the entire hour of the Bible line, you can always do so at our website, wagp.net and click on the archived programs there. Frederick from Portland, Oregon writes, my pastor recently was speaking of a second author for the book of Isaiah. I was unaware that there were two Isaiahs involved in writing this book. Can you help me with this? I'm trying to understand. Well, uh, it's a fair question. Um, 
we had a pastor in town years ago when I came to Buford. He's dead now. Um, that Robert Cutno, the Baptist Church of Buford, he led them away from any conservative overtones. They became cooperative Baptists, and cooperative Baptists today are just really uh, deficient in their beliefs. They openly defy the inerrancy of the Bible. They use the same term. They just use a different dictionary to define it. We have two cooperative Baptist churches on this side of the river. Not to mention there are cooperative Baptist churches now in the country that are affirming gay Christianity and some like First Baptist Church of Greenville that are doing homosexual marriages. So cooperative Baptists are way off. But um, people used to come to me and they would ask me this because he taught courses locally at the um, USCB. He said, you know, Dr. Cotton, he's a doctor, you know. Of course, it was an honorary doctorate, but lay that aside. Dr. Cotton, he says that there's three authors to Isaiah. So you mentioned here two. There's usually... That's the more common position. There's first and second Isaiah, as some would call it, proto-Isaiah or deutero-Isaiah. And then uh, there is a less common but still uh, quite uh, common position where they have trito-Isaiah or third Isaiah. So they break the book down into chapters 1 through 39. They call that first Isaiah. Um, let me get this straight in my mind here. 40 to uh, 55 would be second Isaiah and then... 56 to 66 would be third Isaiah. There's real problems with giving multiple authorship to Isaiah. And let me tell you what the genesis behind it. It's a liberalism that defies the miraculous nature of Scripture and really the miraculous nature of the Bible. So Dr. Gutnow denied the historicity of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. He said Jonah was not in a real huge fish that he was swallowed up, that that's just a parable to teach us a spiritual lesson, that the exit didn't really float. And so he denied the miracles of the Bible. And it was very sad because I was always dealing with Marines who would take courses over there in order to get some credit, and they wanted to take something of a religious nature. The only good side of it was that it, uh, at least for those who are members of Community Bible Church, is it forced them to bone up and to know why they believed what they believe. But here's the problem with um, arguing for multiple uh, authors of Isaiah. Number one, it makes Isaiah, uh, the book itself, filled with lies because it presents itself as a single author. So if there's not a single author to Isaiah, whether you divide it into two or three parts, then you're basically saying that the author's lied because they presented themselves as a single author. So now if the Bible has man's foibles foibles and sinful tendencies bleeding into the pages of Scripture, then Isaiah is either not true at all or it's true in spots. And if it's true in spots, you've got to be inspired to spot the spots to see which verses are inspired and which ones are not. And so, look, God cannot lie. Either God wrote the book of Isaiah through the human author, or he didn't. Number two, not only does it make Isaiah a liar, it makes him not Isaiah the prophet, but Isaiah the historian. How did Jesus refer to Isaiah? In John 12, he referred to him as Isaiah the prophet. So now he's Isaiah the historian. So, for instance, um, in Isaiah 45, I think it's the last verse, Uh, Let me just look there because I don't want to misquote it. 
Uh, let me turn to Isaiah here for a second. Um, Isaiah um, mentions, uh, here it is, Isaiah 45, 44, uh, 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. And then in the first verse of the next chapter, chapter 45, thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. So he's set apart, not in the same way Saul, David, and Solomon were, to uh, answer a previous question, uh, where they were not only set apart, but they were also given a special relationship to the Holy Spirit. Nonetheless, this man is anointed, he's set apart, he's an unbeliever now, remember, he's an unbeliever. But he's God's instrument, uh, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Now, here's Isaiah. He's writing 200 years before Cyrus is even born, ever before the Babylonian captivity happens. And, of course, it's under Cyrus that the Jews are given permission to, to leave and to go back and to rebuild the city. Um, 200 years before he's ever born, Isaiah makes his prophecy, and he not only speaks of a future king and what the king is going to do, he names the king ever before the king is named himself. That's really bothersome to a lot of uh, liberals who deny the prophetic nature of Scripture. So number one, Isaiah is a liar. Number two, Isaiah is a historian, and he fails the test of being a true prophet. Remember, um, let me just turn over to Deuteronomy 18.18 or 18.20, I think it is. Yeah, 18.20, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You shall say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come true, come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall be afraid of him. In other words, what he's saying is if some guy comes along and he says, I'm a prophet of God, what was the test of a true prophet? Well, he had to give a short-term prophecy. Look, it's easy to say what's going to happen a thousand years from now because no one will be alive to see whether or not it will come true. So the test of a true prophet is was not just the long-term prophecies that he gave, but the short-term prophecies he gave. And if the short-term prophecies didn't come true, then he was not a true prophet of God. Well, Isaiah gave short-term prophecies, and one which I just mentioned, where 200 years before he's ever born, uh, Cyrus is named in what he will actually do. So it makes Isaiah a liar, and therefore... The book of Isaiah is inspired in spots, or it's not inspired at all. It makes him a historian, though Jesus calls him Isaiah the prophet. And so that really makes Jesus a liar, because he saw one single author. In fact, in John 12, he quotes from two different sections of Isaiah. I should probably turn there, so let me go to John chapter 12 for just a moment. And um, in John the 12th chapter... Uh, Jesus had been doing all kinds of miracles, and he says, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness will not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. 
These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. Now, John gives some parenthetical notes here. But though he had performed so many other signs or miracles before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. And if you're using the NASB, you will see a change of typeset, which tells you where the quotation is from. It's from Isaiah 53, that it's an Old Testament quotation. Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah says again, and then another change in typeset, alerting you to the fact that this is an Old Testament quotation. This time it comes from Isaiah 6. So here's Jesus. He is um, doing um, miracles. The miracles are ignored because they would not believe. They could not believe. And then John, when he gives a parenthetical note, he quotes from Isaiah, uh, Deutero-Isaiah, as the liberals would say, uh, Isaiah 53, and Proto-Isaiah, or First Isaiah, but both are attributed to Isaiah. Jesus will specifically refer to Isaiah as the prophet. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all quote Isaiah. Acts quotes him. Romans quotes him. First uh, and Second Corinthians quotes him by name. Again, all three parts. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, and I think I know Hebrews does. First uh, Peter does, and then Revelation. We referenced Isaiah. He would lead with a rod of iron. So you've got all these books in the New Testament that are calling Isaiah the prophet. So now, if Isaiah is not the prophet, if Isaiah is the historian, then all these New Testament books are neither inspired. But you see, that's what the liberal wants you to believe. He doesn't believe in the supernatural. Uh, God can't tell the future through men. Therefore, the Bible is not inspired. Therefore, the Bible is inerrant. Is errant. It's full of errors. Uh, you can't trust it. Therefore, you can be the judge of the Bible rather than the Bible judging your life. And yet, for 1,800 years of church history, no one questioned that there was a single author. None of the Jews question the single authorship. Neither today do the Jews question the single authorship of Isaiah. And by the way, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a 24-foot scroll that some of you have seen with me there in um, the place where it is so wonderfully and protectively like the Declaration of Independence stored uh, is a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. One complete 24-foot scroll written by one prophet. So whenever you have a pastor talk about multiple authors of Isaiah, this is what you should do. You should mark in your mind, this guy is either a Christian who's unqualified to be a pastor because he is so ignorant of his own Bible, not sound in doctrine, he shouldn't be a pastor, and he's come under some liberal influence, or more likely, he's just a lost, liberal, lying pastor himself, and you shouldn't sit under his leadership. So to answer your question, where was this guy from? Uh, Portland, Oregon. Portland. I wouldn't blink. I'd leave that church tomorrow because he's unqualified to be a pastor. All right. Very good. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello, Brother Carl. Yes. Thanks for calling. How can we help today, my friend? I have a quick question and then also something that I saw that I'd like to hear you comment on. Okay. So the quick question is, I think you said that you wrote an article about birth control. Uh, where would I read that? 
Uh, it is on my wife's website, uh, Mothering from the Heart, uh, simply because women ask her all the time. And so we put together our thoughts years ago. So go to Mothering from the Heart, and it's uh, found there on that website. Okay. Um, something I saw. That's motheringfromtheheart.org. Uh, that really, uh, yeah, motheringfromtheheart.org. Yeah, so. Okay. And something that I saw that was really amazing is there was this movie, A True Story, in Ireland. Uh, this man, his wife died, and the government, which based their laws on the Bible and the Catholic teachings, they said they have to go to an orphanage because, uh, and then in the court, they showed the actual court proceedings, and the court was arguing that um, the child, the family has to be like the holy family with the mother and the father and the child. Okay. Uh, so you, so, so that the, was pretty amazing. So there's a married, there's a married uh, couple. Let me just see if I got the facts straight in both die or just one of the parents die. Uh, the mother died. So the father's still so alive. The dad, the dad, uh, was left with the children. And so the dad said in his defense, that uh, there's also the example of uh, the Holy Trinity. And so that based on that example in the Bible, uh, he should be allowed to keep his kids, even though there wasn't a mother because she died. So I was pretty touched by that because uh, even in church in America, I mean, I feel I don't really hear the teaching about the family. And so by seeing that movie, I actually learned uh, the really basic uh, teaching of the family in the Bible. So I just wanted to hear you uh, comment on those two, on the Holy Family as the example, uh, you know, Mary and, and Joseph and Jesus, and then also the example of the Trinity as an example for the family. Well, okay, I appreciate the question. Obviously, there's no parallels between the family that Jesus was raised up in and any human family today in the sense that he did not have a human father. And so in that sense, he is the monogene. He's the uniquely begotten Son of God, the one with no beginning or end took on our humanity as the Spirit of God overshadowed Mary's womb and allowed conception to take place. So uh, there's no, obviously, comparisons at all, but there are lessons that we can learn from what we might call the set-apart or the holy family. Uh, Certainly, um, Mary was a great mother. Uh, You know, sometimes I think we dismiss her as Protestants, and we have kind of a knee-jerk reaction to the fact that Catholics have really abused uh, what the Scripture says about her. They make her a perpetual virgin, though the Scripture emphatically denies that. She had normal relationships with Joseph. Uh, She had other children uh, with Joseph. Uh, They're named in Scripture, uh, three brothers, not to mention that Jesus also had sisters in the plural. So um, with that said, 
the family was a lot larger than any you know Roman Catholic would would want to make that family. Um, they also have said that Mary was conceived without sin. They call that the Immaculate Conception, that she never sinned. And of course, because of that, they teach that she has a special role in heaven and administering the grace of God. So you pray to Mary and, you know, you sometimes want to get something done, go to, go to the guy's mother, you know, that's the rationale. Uh, but she was a sinner in the Magnificat, uh, the song of praise from the Latin. Uh, she says, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Uh, so she saw herself as a sinner, though the Roman church denies that. And they say that she was bodily assumed into heaven. Uh, again, those things are just wrong, and because of that, though, unfortunately, sometimes as Protestants or Biblicists, we have not really esteemed her as much as we should. So she took her role as a mother seriously. She was indeed blessed among women to be have, to be a chosen Jewish young woman, whom I suspect was probably, you know, between 16 and 19 years of age. I don't think she was 12 or 13 as some people like to popularize at this time of year. I don't think that for a second you, I've never met a 12-year-old who um, could quote scripture the way Mary did. If you just study her um, her, her prayer, the Magnificat in, in Luke's gospel, it is just rich, rich, rich with someone who for years obviously had been immersed in scripture and had applied it to her heart. And so with that said, um, she was a godly woman, and she didn't put Jesus in daycare, did she? Uh, she, she raised that little guy, and uh, he was full, fully human and fully God. So there's lessons there that we can learn. She was respectful of God's law. She was committed to what God had said. Uh, she was a very, very godly woman. I, I've not seen this movie, so it's very difficult for me to comment on it, but if um, if you were to ask me for a biblical principle, let's say there's a couple and they're married and they have kids and the mother dies, does that mean the other children should be put in an orphanage while the father's alive? Of course not. Uh, he has a responsibility to raise those children, and any law that would uh, mitigate against that would be a bad law, an evil law, a less than faithful law. But again, I've not seen the movie, so I'm not even sure I'm representing that well, but that would be the, the, the principle um, as, um, as exposed in Scripture. Anyway, we're out of time again. Thank you for being with us for this hour on the Bible line. It's always posted online, and uh, you can always listen to it, email it, get the Search the Scriptures app if that would be of help to you as well. God bless you as you walk with Christ this day. 